1: Well,
0: good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today, we're going to talk with Catherine James. She is an award-winning author. Her latest book is a memoir, A Prayer for Orion, A Son's Addiction and a Mother's Love. She'll be joining us later this hour. I want to thank James Blend for producing. Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. We're looking forward to a good two hours. Well, President Trump looking at the headlines uh, on Thursday gave a victory speech after the Senate overwhelmingly voted to acquit him of both articles of impeachment yesterday afternoon. He made the announcement yesterday uh, to the public that he'd be making the statement to, today at noon from the White House to discuss Our country's victory on the impeachment hoax, the president tweeted on Wednesday. The White House declared that the president had received full vindication and exoneration from a sham impeachment by a final vote of 52 to 48 against conviction on the abuse of power charge and 53-47 against conviction on the obstruction of uh, justice. The obstruction of Congress charge. The Senate fell far short of the two thirds or 67 vote supermajority needed to convict and remove the president. Swing vote Republican senators, including Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine, and Lamar Alexander of Texas, voted to acquit on both counts. The only party defection was on the abuse of power charge from Senator Mitt Romney, who declared hours before the final vote that Trump had engaged in as destructive an attack on the oath of his office and our Constitution as I can imagine. However, he voted not guilty on the obstruction charge. Well, some expected the mood at the White House to be jovial today as the president embarked on his victory lap. Meanwhile, the mood was somber on the Democrat side, coupled with an embarrassing debacle over the final vote tally in the Iowa caucuses and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's public display of frustration and anger in ripping the president's speech at the State of the Union. It's been a very bad week. Several congressional Democrats uh, were Dejected on Capitol Hill late Wednesday, even as they said they hoped to weaponize the acquittal votes by several moderate Republicans in swing states. That didn't happen, and now they have to face consequences on the road leading to the November election. Well, Pete Buttigieg and Senator Bernie Sanders are nearly tied in Iowa, or at least it appears so at this point, in the Democratic caucuses, with nearly all results counted in a contest marred by technical issues and reporting delays. According to the Associated Press, the race uh, remained too close to call. With 97 percent of the precincts reporting, a new batch of results released just after midnight narrowed the margin between Buttigieg and former mayor of South Bend and Sanders, the senator, the progressive senator from Vermont. Well, Kirk Douglas, one of the most famous American leading men in the mid 20th century, remembered for his dimpled chin, chiseled features and virile Hollywood roles, died on Wednesday at the age of one hundred and three, his family announced. His son, Michael Douglas, reflected on his father's legacy, saying, in part, Kirk's life was well lived and he leaves a legacy in film that will endure for generations to come and a history as a renowned philanthropist who worked to aid the public and bring peace to the planet. I should mention that when I was a youngster, I uh, heard an interview with Kirk Douglas and he was talking about that dimple in his chin. I always wanted to have dimples and he was making a joke. He said, yeah, I took a razor blade and I just kind of cut that out. And I actually contemplated uh, doing just that. Didn't do it. Never happened. So thankfully, I uh, was held back. Well, Nancy Pelosi uh, pre-ripped the State of the Union address, according to observers. Mitch McConnell immediately after impeachment acquittal files a cloture on more judges to remake the judiciary. Nancy Pelosi uploaded uh, rather unloaded on Trump in private a meeting um, after the State of the Union address standoff and top Romney uh, advisors working with Hunter Biden on uh, a board of Ukrainian energy company is now drawing some ire and Buttigieg Sanders nearly tied in the Iowa caucuses China cut tariffs on 75 billion dollars of U.S. imports. And Obamacare made things worse, rather, for patients with pre-existing conditions, according to a new survey. Sesame Street is going to feature a cross-dressing gay entertainer for impressionable preschoolers. Heads up. And Baltimore County admits it hasn't seen, uh, hasn't been recycling glass for seven years. It still encourages residents to recycle, however. I'm not sure what they're doing with what they're collecting. Well, on this day in history, 1911, Ronald Wilson Reagan, the 40th president of the United States, is born in Tampica, Illinois. 1778, during the American Revolutionary War, the United States wins official recognition and military support from France with the signing of a treaty of alliance in Paris. 1933, the 20th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the so-called Lame Duck Amendment, is proclaimed in effect by Secretary of State Henry Stimson. On this day in history, 1998, President Bill Clinton signed a bill changing the name of Washington National Airport to Ronald Reagan, Washington National Airport. And finally, on this day in 2018, SpaceX big new rocket blasts off from Kennedy Space Center on its first test flight carrying a red sports car on a route that would uh, take it to the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Well, hundreds of protesters, backed by a large convoy of empathetic truckers, Converged on the state capitol today to protest the cap and trade bill proposed by Democrats and the thort, short, rather 35-day legislative session that began earlier this week. The Oregon Department of Transportation issued a warning for motorists to be aware of the big rigs and heavy congestion. The heaviest congestion uh, was in and around Salem. A similar rally took place in 2019 involving hundreds of trucks and created traffic delays, according to the Department of Transportation. Uh, Whether or not they are still there, not altogether clear, but uh, just something to keep in mind. Well, while elected officials from either party don't agree on the outcome of the impeachment trial, they could agree on how to pray for the proceedings, according to Barry Black, a Seventh-day Adventist minister and the longtime chaplain of the U.S. Senate. So what do you pray after the U.S. Senate votes to acquit Trump on two articles of impeachment, as it did on Wednesday afternoon? Well, you pray that God's will be done. I think the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane provides us with the model. Black said, speaking to Christianity today, he said the preamble to saying, let your will be done can be father. All things are possible for you. If it is possible, let the impeachment trial come out this way. Nevertheless, not your will, but uh, not my will rather, but yours be done. That's the basic setup. But the dominant thematic focus should always be let your will be done. Well, the minister with his signature bow tie and deep preachers cadence says that in the middle of the polarization and partisan sniping he was urged uh, urging senators and staff on both sides to seek god's will uh, people have um, have been limit- listening rather closely to his prayers as the senate Had battled over the historic impeachment vote, he draws powerful phrases from his daily devotions and hours of scriptural study to inform those prayers. Before a full chamber of lawmakers, he prayed the senators might be bold as lions one morning. Another, he pled for a moral discernment to be used for your glory. And one line last week caught a lot of attention. They can't ignore you and get away with it, he said. Where we always reap what we sow. Well, the Senate uh, voted mostly along party lines, as you know, to acquit the president, rejecting the abuse of power charge and the other as well. I support a great deal of what the president has done, uh, Mitt Romney said, the one who said his vote was based solely on conscience, but he'd voted uh, with him 80% of the time, and promised before God to apply impartial justice. He voted on one count uh, against the president. Well, today was the national uh, prayer breakfast. We'll talk more about uh, how that went with the polarized politicians. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
0: We're back 20 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with award-winning author Catherine James, her latest book, A Prayer for Orion, A Son's Addiction and A Mother's Love. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. Well, today was the prayer breakfast in Washington. President Trump didn't let a prayerful audience stop him. From calling political opponents who tried to remove him from office dishonest and corrupt, but he also did accuse two major newspapers of running fake news on this particular day. Coming to the stage before speaking at the National Prayer Breakfast one day after the Senate voted mostly along party lines to acquit him in the impeachment, the president held up copies of The Washington Post and USA Today with their banner headlines. The gesture prompted laughter from the audience in his 26-minute speech. He emphasized his administration's work to protect religious freedom at home and abroad. But the president also talked about the impeachment trial in which uh, his uh, Democratic opponents accused him of abusing power and obstructing Congress. My family, our great country, and your president have been put through a terrible ordeal by some very dishonest and corrupt people, he said at the prayer breakfast. It was the 68th annual bipartisan event. They have done everything possible to destroy us, and by doing so, very badly hurt our nation, he went on to say at the prayer breakfast. Um, weeks ago and again yesterday, courageous Republican politicians, he went on with a more political speech than is typical for the event. All but one, of course, as the president pointed out. Uh, the second half of the president's comments seemed to be a shot at House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who was also sitting at the head table just opposite him. She routinely had said that she uh, the impeachment process was a time to be prayerful and that. She was praying for Trump even as she got behind the effort to impeach him. In everything we do, we are creating a culture that protects freedom and that includes religious freedom, he went on to say, but then uh, said that he didn't like certain people that included those who profess to pray but do not. Well, Pelosi, who Tuesday night made a public spectacle of ripping up uh, her copy of the president's State of the Union address, spoke earlier at the prayer breakfast without addressing Political developments saying we pray that moral clarity of faith moves us to demand justice for those who are suffering. And we pray that commercial interests never blind us to the uh, ongoing human rights struggle fought by so many throughout the world. She, a Catholic, told the audience, speaking later to reporters during her weekly press briefing, she said it was inappropriate for the president to hold up the newspaper headlines and to get into partisan politics at the annual event. He's talking about things that he knows little about faith and prayer Speaking of the president, needless to say, it was not a particularly cordial event. However, in addressing the um, uh, full body, there was a keynote speaker. And in that address, delivered at the 68th National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, Conservative author Arthur Brooks encouraged biblical love amid a nationwide crisis of contempt and polarization, reminding everyone there, including the president and Pelosi, the speaker, that Jesus ordered his followers to love and not just tolerate their enemies. Now, this may be a bridge too far under these circumstances for those assembled there, but opening his speech, uh, the professor of public leadership at Harvard Kennedy School and senior fellow at the Harvard Business School described himself as a follower of Jesus. The same Jesus who taught us to love God and taught us to love each other, he added. Today, I'm here to talk to you about the biggest crisis facing our nation and many other nations today. It's the crisis of contempt and polarization that's tearing our societies apart. In this crisis resides the greatest opportunity we have, uh, we have ever had as people of faith to lift our nations above and to bring our people together. He went on to say when it comes to an old problem like contempt and polarization, it's important to think differently to achieve a new and effective solution. The author of 11 books turned to the words of Jesus, society's greatest entrepreneur and thinker, from Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, end quote. Well, such words are as subversive and counterintuitive today as they were 2,000 years ago, Professor Brooks went on to say. But to apply these words to today's polarized society, we need to make the problem personal, he contended, the speaker Reveal that uh, his own parents, devout Christians, are politically liberal, starkly contrasting his own politically conservative beliefs. I want it to be personal to you on this day, the love of your enemies, the author said. Let uh, let me ask you this. How many of you love somebody with whom you strongly disagree politically? Are you comfortable hearing someone insult that person that you love? Make it personal, my friends. Moral courage, he said, isn't standing up to those with whom you disagree, rather it's standing up to those with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. When it comes to marriage, contempt kills, he pointed out, uh, adding contempt is ripping our country apart. We're like a couple on the rocks in this country. Don't believe it. Turn on Prime TV. It's tearing our society apart. He went on to say, how do we break the habit of contempt? Some people say we need more civility and tolerance. I say nonsense. Why? Because civility and tolerance are a low standard. Jesus didn't say tolerate your enemies. He said, love your enemies. Answer hatred with love. Well, they gave audiences three pieces of homework. First, ask God to give you the strength to do this hard thing, to go against your human nature, to follow Jesus' teaching. You believe Jesus' teaching? Act like it, he implored the audience. Ask God to take political contempt from your heart. Sometimes, when it's just too hard, ask God to help you fake it. Second, Brooks encouraged attendees to make a commitment to somebody else to reject contempt. Of course, you're going to disagree. That's what makes America great. It's the competition of ideas, he said. But do it without contempt. Ask somebody to hold you accountable. Finally, he advised his audience, and again, this is the National Prayer Breakfast that was held earlier today. He advised his audience to go out looking for contempt. It's your opportunity for moral perfection, uh, Brooks explained. Why? Because when people treat you with hatred and you answer with love, you change the country. It's like being a missionary. This is your opportunity to show people what leadership is all about. Run toward the darkness bring your light. When you leave this national prayer breakfast today, you'll be back in a world with a lot of contempt. So it is. see it as your opportunity. He advised listeners to imagine a sign above the door reading, you are now entering mission territory. If you see the world, if you see the world outside the room as mission territory, we might just mark this day as the point at which our national healing begins. President Trump, uh, as I mentioned, also spoke uh, Thursday at Thursday's event, which was uh, attended by the Speaker of the House. Uh, One can only hope and wonder if either of them was actually listening. One can hope and take up the charge that was presented to lawmakers and other luminaries in Washington at that uh, at that event. Well, following the uh, day of prayer or the prayer breakfast, I should say, the President Assembled a group of people in the uh, in the White House. It could be described as sort of an hour long stream of consciousness. They weren't prepared remarks, but the president commanding a triumphant scene at the White House, complete with the playing of hail to the chief railed against what he called an evil impeachment process on Thursday, hours after his historic acquittal. Greeted by thunderous applause, a standing ovation by his supporters, he declared, we went through, well, Hades, but described the moment as a celebration while maintaining, as uh, he did throughout the impeachment inquiry and trial, that he did nothing wrong. And on a day when the he and the House Speaker were trading shots in deeply personal terms, he turned fire on those who prosecuted the case and other investigators against, investigations against him. He called Pelosi and House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff horrible and vicious people. It was evil. He went on to say it was contempt. It was dirty cops, and it went on and on and on. Uh, he detailed the timeline of the investigation, remarking of the uh, uh, Russian probe. It was, uh, and he used expletives. As um, he did earlier Thursday at the prayer breakfast, he brandished a copy of the day's Washington Post with a blaring headline Trump acquitted. Well, it went on from there, and as I mentioned, it was sort of an hour-long stream of consciousness, very unusual for a White House event. Some are arguing that the president deserves the opportunity to vent, given the fact that this has gone on for the first three years of his administration. Nonetheless, it was certainly less than presidential, and one would hope, after leaving the prayer breakfast, that uh, the, the communication might have been a bit more gracious and elevated. But that's what happened earlier today, and I suspect will continue throughout the next few days. Good opportunity to pray and to confront contempt in your own environment with the love that Mr. Brooks spoke about at that prayer breakfast. Up next, we're going to talk with Catherine James. She is the writer, the author of A Prayer for Orion, A Son's Addiction and a Mother's Love. That's right next, right here on The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
0: We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. We're trying to reach our guest, Katherine James, author of A Prayer for Orion, A Son's Addiction and a Mother's Love. Hopefully we'll reach her at some point during this segment. Well, two days after the partial results from the Iowa's botched caucuses showed him a In a distant fourth place behind political upstart Pete Buttigieg, 37, former mayor, and socialist Bernie Sanders, 78, current senator, Joe Biden went on the attack in a manner those uh, keeping a close eye on the Democratic 2020 White House race hadn't seen before. Desperation setting in, perhaps. Is he really saying the Obama-Biden administration was a failure? He just uh, say it out loud, the former vice president said at a rally in Summersworth on Wednesday. Well, Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, last week warned voters that while he hears Biden saying that this is uh, no time to take a risk on someone new, it would be a risk to use the same Washington playbook and recycle the same arguments and expect that to work against a president like Donald Trump. Well, Biden hit back on Wednesday with a pretty forceful um, uh, Response that was absent as he made his closing pitch to Iowa Democrats last week before the opening contest. Well, the response is at odds with Biden's initial reaction to Buttigieg's uh, dig last week as a sign of things uh, that things are getting a bit tight. He also took jabs at Sanders at an event in Nashua on Tuesday. I mean, the campaigning has begun in earnest, and Biden's numbers have not been favorable. Uh, That is, of course, if you can accept what Iowa is saying. The outcome, well, nearly is. Meanwhile, Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez uh, called for the Iowa Democratic Party to conduct a re after the state's caucuses earlier this week were mired with uh, confusion and have yet to produce a definitive result. Now, the National Democratic uh, Committee cannot uh, do this, but the Democratic Party there in Iowa can Perez, who is the national leader, cited difficulties with the delegate selection plan and concern over public trust in the results of the caucuses that were held, well, days ago. That was Monday. After nearly three days of controversy, enough is enough, he tweeted today. In light of the problems that have emerged in the implementation of the delegate selection plan and in order to assure public confidence in the results, I'm calling on the Iowa Democratic Party to immediately begin a recanvass. Well, by um, this morning, with 97% of the Iowa precincts in, former South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, uh, mayor, I should say, narrowly leads the count with 26.2% of the delegates, over 26.1% in favor of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, according to numbers released by the Iowa Democratic Party. But a New York Times report revealed that the canvass, um, or rather the caucuses, were riddled with errors and inconsistencies. The report said that more than 100 precincts had results uh, that had inconsistencies, such as missing information or results that were not possible under the complex rules of the Iowa caucuses. The Times said that the errors didn't seem to reflect any bias for the leading candidates. Still, it said that there are significant problems that could foster doubts about the process and certainly the outcome. Now, right now, you have... um, Pete Buttigieg claiming victory, but you also have uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders claiming victory in the popular vote. He's only one percentage point behind in the delegate um, uh, vote. Well, the Times said that the errors didn't seem to reflect bias. The inability to declare the results on Monday night had been blamed on multiple factors. First, the state party blamed an app for the inability to declare on Monday night, a problem that still lingers, even as frustrated candidates have packed up and moved on to New Hampshire for the nation's first primary. Then workers manning the phones reportedly claimed that President Trump backers flooded the hotline number with for precinct chairs that led to even more confusion and disarray. So, I'm not sure how they could de- determine who was actually making those calls, but nonetheless... Uh, the resolution has eluded Iowa thus far. The uh, caucus caucuses, rather, were Monday, and now it's Thursday, and we still don't have a definitive answer. Well, there's great concern uh, all across the globe about the coronavirus. Uh, Li Wenliang, a doctor in China who was allegedly detained for warning others about the coronavirus before he himself was sickened by the illness, has now died. His death was confirmed during a World Health Organization press briefing today. We're very sad to hear of the loss of Dr. Li Wenliang, who uh, officials said before adding that it was too soon to say whether the outbreak was reaching a peak. Uh, The doctor had claimed that he shared his concerns about the virus in a private chat with other medical students before he was detained by authorities. Dr. Li, who, according to the BBC, was a 34-year-old ophthalmologist from Wuhan Central Hospital, had claimed that in late December he shared his concerns via private chat with medical school students after several patients exhibited symptoms similar to SARS before he was visited and warned by authorities. He was then summoned to Public Security Bureau, where he was forced to sign a letter stating that he had false comments about the virus, according to the BBC. Authorities later apologized. Well, shortly after, he began coughing and developed a fever that landed him in the hospital for several days. And then on the 30th of last month, he tested positive for the virus. Well, news of his February 6th death first began circulating uh, on social media and health blogs in China. It's not known if he had any underlying health complications that may have impacted the severity of his illness. Well, the, the rather novel coronavirus rather, has uh, sickened more than 28,000 worldwide and resulted in at least 563 deaths. About 99 percent of cases have occurred in mainland China, although two deaths have been reported outside the country, including in the Philippines and in Hong Kong. Well, as mentioned earlier, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar has announced on Friday that the coronavirus has been declared a public health emergency in the U.S., Beginning 5 o'clock p.m. on the 2nd of February, citizens returning from Hubei province in China will be subject to a 14-day quarantine, while other Americans who traveled elsewhere in the country, in China, will be instructed to self-monitor for possible symptoms. Azar also said that the president is temporarily suspending entry into the U.S. for foreign nationals who pose a risk of transmitting the virus. In the same press conference, the Department of Homeland Security announced that starting Sunday, flights coming to the U.S. from China will be funneled through seven airports that are equipped to screen patients for symptoms of the virus. The move comes as Delta Airlines and American Airlines suspended flights between the U.S. and China, following several other international airlines who made similar announcements. United Airlines said that it was suspending flights to Beijing, Shanghai, Chengdu, uh, but would continue flying to Hong Kong. Officials continue to stress that the overall risk to the American public remains fairly low, but that that the measures being taken are to help focus efforts as we are dealing with unknowns. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health, said that one of the unknowns is the recent development out of Germany that the virus can be transmitted from an infected person who is asymptomatic. The announcement came after hours after the CDC said that 195 passengers who arrived in California. On a flight from China on Wednesday, were are being kept under a 14-day quarantine as they are continually monitoring their symptoms or for symptoms. As of Friday, there have been more than 9,600 confirmed cases of the virus with over 200 deaths. Officials said that the number of confirmed cases in the U.S. remains at six, with the latest being an Illinois man whose wife was diagnosed with the virus after traveling to Wuhan, which is considered the epicenter Of that uh, coronavirus. Well, the question now is, what is causing, or what's the source of this um, of this virus? Globally, cases have been reported in neighboring Eastern nations, as far-flung places as uh, France, Germany, Finland, California, and of course, the United States, which uh, it has been reported uh, uh, on Thursday reported its first uh, case of person-to-person transmission. Um, uh, That's Thursday last. Well, but how is the deadly outbreak? How did it start? Well, the World Health Organization's Chinese office says it began receiving reports in late December of a mysterious virus behind a number of pneumonia cases in Wuhan. Researchers suspect the virus originated at a seafood market in Wuhan where wild animals, including birds, rabbits, bats and snakes, are traded. It was initially believed the virus came from snakes, but a research paper by a team of Virologists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology suggest that the coronavirus more likely comes from bats, which are also the source of the SARS outbreak. Bats are known to carry multiple viruses without getting sick, according to The New York Times, which said they have caused human diseases in Africa, Malaysia, Bangladesh and Australia and are thought to be the reservoir of Ebola as well. Authorities shut down the market um, On January 1st, where it's thought to have originated, but by then the virus had spread beyond the market and was being transmitted between people. Well, on the 12th of January, the Chinese health officials shared a genetic um, sequence of the virus with other countries to better diagnose the strain uh, for patients who might be carrying it. A committee of the World Health Organization declared the outbreak a global emergency. The UN Health Agency defines an international emergency as an extraordinary event. It constitutes a risk to other countries and requires a coordinated international response. That kind of declaration usually brings greater money and resources, but also compels governments to restrict travel and trade to effective areas. The announcement also imposes stricter requirements for disease reporting on countries. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show back in a moment.
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast It is aired on ninety three point nine kpdQ
0: We're back 49 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Sadly, my expected guest, Catherine James, will not be joining us. There was some sort of a technical error, and so we have been unable to reach her, but we'll soldier on. Uh, We're talking about the coronavirus. They seem to have pinpointed the source. They believe it's from bats that are a source of nourishment in some parts of the country and in Uh, The one area where it is thought to have originated, Uh, there's a market in which these uh, were were being traded. The World Health Organization, I guess the other question is, how is it uh, transmitted? On Thursday, they declared um, the outbreak a global emergency. That was Thursday last after a number of cases spiked more than tenfold in a single week. Well, the U.N. Health Agency uh, defines an international emergency as an extraordinary event that constitutes a risk to other countries and requires a coordinated international response. Well, they say that this virus is spread at unprecedented uh, scale and speed with cases passing between people in multiple countries across the world. Uh, the director of Britain's Welcome Trust says it's also a, start remi- a stark reminder of how vulnerable we are to epidemics of infectious disease known and unknown. Now, we used to—we tend to think that because we live in a modern society in the 21st century, we're no longer subject to this kind of uh, contagion. but uh apparently that is not the case and the fact that we travel so much they're no longer contained to particular areas as scientists race to understand how the virus is spare, is spreading rather among people in china at least 18 other countries have since reported cases the united states and south korea uh confirmed their cases last week as way as well from person to person uh, contact scientists say transmission of the virus is most likely between people with close contact like families. But there have been reported instances of people who may have had less exposure to the virus in Japan and Germany. The coronavirus has now affected more people in China than were sickened there during the 2002-2003 outbreak of SARS. Virologists believe it originated at a seafood market, as I mentioned, in eastern In the Chinese uh, town of Wuhan, when someone or a group of people came in contact with the wild animals being traded there, most likely bats, according to the Centers for Disease Control, the virus uh, is common among camels, cattle, cats and bats. Person-to-person transmissions are thought to occur when an infected person coughs or sneezes, similar to how influenza or other respiratory pathogens are spread. Other ways the virus may spread uh, from an infected person to others is through touching or shaking hands or if a person touches a surface with the virus on it, then touches their mouth or nose, eyes before washing their hands. So washing one's hands is... Pretty important. Well, despite the World Health Organization's declaration, the immediate health risk to the general American public still remains relatively low, but it's being monitored very closely. Well, Tokyo's organizing committee CEO said that the coronavirus outbreak could endanger the 2020 Olympic Games if the spread of the disease could not be stopped. Uh, Mr. Um, uh, Toshiro Muto relayed his concerns about the mysterious disease uh, that broke out in China last month uh, at a Wednesday meeting of the Paralympic Games officials in Tokyo, according to Reuters. The 2020 Summer Olympic Games are set to take place in Tokyo this year, beginning in late July. He said, I'm very seriously concerned. I hope this will be resolved as soon as possible, adding that the disease could throw cold water over a growing momentum, of the 2020 Games. You can't even imagine preparing to host the Games and then to have them postponed or called off. That would be a disaster for their communities. Um, China's Ministry of Health reported its deadliest day from the disease was um, this past Monday. The number of fatalities has increased uh, by 64 to 425. The Health Ministry also reported uh, 3,200 new cases, bringing the total number of affected um, uh, infected to more than 20,000 in the um, uh, in the epidemic in that area. Well, meanwhile, some news that I think is probably better news, a type of black fungi that eats radiation was discovered inside the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. In 1991, the strange fungi was found growing up the walls of the reactor, which baffled scientists due to the extreme radiation-heavy environment. Well, researchers eventually realized that not only was the fungi impervious to the deadly radiation— It seemed to be attracted to it. Well, a decade later, researchers tested some of the fungi, and they determined that it had a large amount of the pigment melanin, which is also found, among other places, in the skin of humans. People with darker skin, like myself tend to have much more melanin, which is known to absorb light and dissipate ultraviolet radiation in skin. However, in fungi, it reportedly absorbed radiation and converted it into some type of chemical energy for growth. Well, in a 2008 paper, uh, the, the then-Albert uh, Einstein College of Medicine in New York Noted that the fungi attracted to radiation are unlikely to be the first examples of their kind. Large quantities of highly melanized fungal spores have been found in Um, Early crustaceous period uh, deposits when many species of animals and plants died out. Well, those uh, periods coincide with the Earth's crossing the magnetic zero resulting in the loss of its shield against cosmic radiation, the paper's introduction states. Now, I'm not sure I understand all of that, but it is rather interesting. The fungi indicate that there could be places in the cosmos, which we are unaware of, where organisms could live in radiation-filled environments. Hmm. And well, other health news, a number of U.S. troops diagnosed with mild traumatic brain injuries since an Iranian airstrike earlier this month has increased to 64, according to the Pentagon. The figure has changed several times since the 8th of January, which is when the missile attack on U.S. and coalition forces took place in Iraq. The president initially said no Americans were harmed in the Iranian retaliatory strike for the death of the Quds Force General Qassam Soleimani in Baghdad that occurred days earlier. Well, the increase comes days after the Pentagon updated the number of American military personnel from 34 to 50. Of those injured, 39 service members have returned to duty, the Pentagon said. Defense officials warn the number could change as symptoms uh, develop. Um, That could be later. These things are uh, cumulative, uh, says the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So if you get multiple concussions that can manifest itself down the road, it could be a year, two years, We're early in the stage of diagnosis. We're early in the stage of therapy for these troops. We'll continue to monitor them for the rest of their lives. Actually, while the president appeared to downplay the injuries suffered by U.S. troops, I don't consider them very serious injuries relative to other injuries that I've seen, he said, which is something of an understatement. Um, He was uh, speaking to a reporter in Switzerland where he attended the World Economic Forum in Davos. I've seen what Iran has done with their roadside bombs to our troops. And certainly there are some catastrophic injuries, but certainly a traumatic uh, head injury can be as catastrophic. And part of the challenge with that is it's not always visible to the uh, onlooker while the suffering can be rather severe. And then there's this behavioral disorders in children could be tied to the bacteria in their gut. Well, that's according to some brand new research out of the University of Oregon and Oregon State University. See, they're collaborating, they get along. The study published this week in mBio, I should say last week in mBio, uh the journal of the American Society for Microbiology. They looked at 40 kids in the Pacific Northwest between the ages of 5 and 7. The researchers' goal was to see if there was any relationship between the kinds of bacteria found in the gastrointestinal tracts of children and their behaviors. Well, specifically, they wanted to see if there was any link between what was in the children's gut and behavioral disorders, and they discovered there was. They found children with behavioral problems did, in fact, have different microorganisms in their gut um, than those who did not. Uh, Over the long run, if we're able to show that the microbiome does indeed drive the emergence of behavior, then it suggests we may be able to modify, manipulate, or manage the microbiome to help manage or control the development of behavior in children. Well, that's really pretty significant. That's a quote, by the way, from OSU microbiologist Dr. Thomas Sharpton. Well, the researcher's next step rather, is to expand the study to more children and then follow those children over several years to see if changes in their gut bacteria is linked to changes in behavior over a period of time. It's a rather interesting line of study. Again, behavioral disorders in children tied to um, uh, their gut bacteria. Now, this is a relatively small study, 40 kids here in the Pacific Northwest, ages five and seven, and they'll have to be followed for a number of years to confirm that this uh, is, in fact, a link um, that can be uh, treated, but nonetheless, a rather interesting health update. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Portland police should give their full name, the reason for the stop, and ask what can be done to put you at ease. According to community groups and a new decision being made about the protocol that Portland police officers are supposed to uh, exercise when connecting with the public. Well, when pulling over a car or approaching a pedestrian, now one hopes that neither is necessary for reasons other than a simple cordial hello Portland police officers should introduce themselves with their full names, explain the reason for the stop, clearly state if they're detaining someone or not, and ask if they could do anything to put the person at ease. Well, that's the unanimous recommendation approved 8-0 to on Tuesday night by a community group appointed by the mayor to oversee Portland police. Well, according to the um, co-chair of the Committee on Community engaged. uh, Policing, rather. This recommendation would radically change the interactions at stops or searches by laying out everything at the stop. The Portland Police Bureau, under Chief Outlaw, has championed procedural justice, and this recommendation would put that into practice. Police Chief Jamie Risch, who took over uh, for Outlaw on the uh, 31st of December, said that she'll take a look at the idea, but the head of the Rank and File Officers Union expressed reservations about officer's being required to follow a script. Both the uh, chief of police and officer Daryl Turner said police already do most of those things. Well, the committee's proposal also urges the police bureau to note in uh, police reports why officers make the stops. Now, it would be helpful to know why a person is being stopped, but uh, the rest of the protocol also applies. Well, Portland officers stopped African-American motorists and pedestrians at more than twice the rate of white people stopping during 12 months ending in June. According to data examined by the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission, African-American motorists also were more likely to be searched, yet less likely than whites to be found with contraband. Well, city auditors reported in May that the Bureau still uh, doesn't document investigative reasons for motorists and pedestrian stops by the former gang enforcement team, now the gun violence reduction team. The auditors also said police have no comprehensive data on what they call mere conversations defined as contacts with people who are free to leave at any time. Now, again, this could be an interaction in Starbucks or perhaps a stop on the street. Well, the audit also found the gang enforcement team lacked records to explain why its officers pulled over so many African-American motorists during traffic stops or if their tactics were effective in reducing violence. If people were being treated fairly and justly. They're more likely to follow the law. That's a quote from Marcia Perez, a member of the Oversight Committee, who worked as a Multnomah County Juvenile Court Counselor and now serves as a Youth and Gang Violence Prevention Coordinator. This will help increase trust in the community. Now, let me ask you, is that true? If police officers give their full name, the reason for the stop, ask what can be done to put you at ease. Does that um, make you feel more comfortable with the whole process? Does that put you at ease? Well, she said she hopes police officers and officials will work with committee members to iron out specific language for this new policy. We're not policy experts, but can make recommendations to develop one collaboratively, she says. Well, the Bureau now requires officers to display their badge. That's always helpful their name tag on their uniform, identify themselves by name and offer their police business card when responding to an emergency call, making a stop or conducting an investigation. They aren't required to identify themselves when it uh, would compromise their safety, interfere with police duties, or if a supervisor says they don't have to because of a safety concern, special assignment or other reasons. So they're already doing part of what's been recommended. Resh says, and this is the current um, uh, chief of police, that she believes officers now do a lot of what the committee is recommending, but she'll review the proposal. Under outlaw, the Bureau began to include procedural justice concepts in all training. The four main principles are giving someone a voice, being neutral in decision making, promoting transparency or respect in officers' actions, and trustworthiness. Turner, who's the president of the Portland Police Association, said officers practice the protocols the community group has already recommended. Officers, though, shouldn't be required to provide specific instructions in a specific order because of the different dynamics involved in each stop. It's not like a Miranda rights being given at a particular time. There's no one size fits all, and only the officer involved in the interaction can access what information shall be given and in which order it's given in. He said, well, Drury shared an experience he had last uh, last Sunday night when he received a call from a young man of color, a student of his from his work in the community who was stopped and pulled over outside Portland. The student called him and asked him to remain on FaceTime with him during that uh, that stop. He feared for his safety, wanted me to stay on the line. The officer was agitated. He, the student, began recording the incident when for him it was a matter of personal safety. O'Drury had taught at Rosemary Anderson High School before becoming executive director of the nonprofit Word is Bond, which works to build positive relationships between young black men and law enforcement. Drury also criticized the question that police sometimes ask motorists. Uh, Do you know why I stopped you? It seems like a logical question, but he says uh, it's a backwards question asking me to incriminate myself. Well, he wants officers to ask motorists if they have any reasonable accommodation the officer can make to make the motorist feel more safe. Seems like an odd question, but there is uh, some logic behind it. That can range, he said, from stepping back slightly, writing down their instructions and showing them to the person or giving a motorist a chance to call a mentor Acting Captain Chuck Lovell, a supervisor of the Portland Bureau Community Service Division, said everything officers do when they stop a car is intended to keep the officer safe, safe, rather as well as the motorist and passengers in the vehicle. Officers are instructed to overly um, convey information, asking such questions as the location of someone's driver's license, so the officer knows. Uh, where it is before the motorist reaches for it, and so on. Well, the committee also adopted an idea offered by Dan Handelman of the police watchdog group uh, Portland Cop Watch. The officer should ask motorists to keep their hands visible for their safety and then ask if there are any other reasonable accommodations they can make to ensure the driver feels more comfortable. Uh, A committee member who works as a uh, peer wellness specialist for Cascadia Behavioral Health Team expressed initial reluctance to support the policy recommendation concerned it could put officers at greater risk. Every single stop is a potential risk to life and limb, not just for the motorist as they might perceive it, but certainly for the officer. She ended up supporting the idea after other committee members pointed out that officers would be excused from the requirement in certain circumstances if it would impair their duties or when a crime is in progress. Weapons are visible or where force may be Necessary. Another action that same community group did endorse the use of body cameras for officers, but adopted recommendations governing their use if police ever decide to provide them to officers. That is currently not the case. Well, the current police chief uh, had voiced support to outfit officers in a pilot program before providing the cameras to the full bureau. Community group said officers should be randomly selected for the pilot project. An independent third party should store the footage and make the footage available to the public. Officers should write their police reports before viewing the footage so they don't tailor their accounts based on the video, although it may help them recall with greater accuracy. And officers who turn off their cameras when they're supposed to be operating should face strict discipline, including termination. So these are things that are currently being considered with the Portland Police Bureau. Well, what does Christianity have to do with the quality of chocolate? Well, a lot, according to a Swiss Air representative. Well, the company just announced that it's cutting ties with, and let me see if I can uh, try to pronounce this at least close to what it would sound like in the native language, Ladrach, uh, one of its uh, high, uh, high-end sweets suppliers, because the owner happens to be a believer. And not just any believer, but a pro-life, pro-marriage evangelical. So it's even worse. According to the International Airliner, the sky is the limit for that. Well, because I fight for the unborn, I'm accused of misogyny, says the CEO, uh, speaking to reporters. But I'm not a misogynist. 60% of our managers are women. And while Swiss Air was worried about the impact his views would have on the crews who identify as gay, He says uh, adamantly, no one at this company is homophobic, neither the management nor the staff. We have homosexuals working for us. We don't ask about it. He has zero tolerance policy regarding discrimination. But that's not enough. Unfortunately for this particular chocolatier, who employs more than 1,000 people in 14 countries, none of that seems to matter to the airline. Like a lot of major corporations, it doesn't care if accusations of intolerance are real. It only cares about pushing Christians out of the marketplace. Well, just look at what's happening overseas, say, to Franklin Graham. While he tries to carry on the legacy of his father in the U.K., several venues are refusing to host him, or worse, canceling his events altogether. Fortunately for the people there, he isn't easily deterred. On Saturday, despite the news, he posted that he's looking forward to preaching the gospel across the UK in late May and June. He's been a target of an international smear campaign tied to uh, combat the lies that he's coming to preach hate Well, in a message specifically from the LGBT community there, he wrote, It is said by some that I am coming to the UK to bring hateful speech to your community. This is just not true. I am coming to share the gospel, which is the good news that God loves the people of the UK and that Jesus Christ came to this earth to save us from our sins. My message, he went on, is inclusive. I'm not coming out of hate. I'm coming out of love. Well, in the West, the fallout over faith only... Uh, is only deepening the subtle marginalization of believers, of Christians, for holding the same view of marriage that Barack Obama espoused when he was elected is being driven by a lot of these um, big corporations. And if this marginalization continues in the United States, it will almost certainly lead to even greater global persecution of Christians. Thankfully, the current president and his administration has been challenging this wave of intolerance for the last three years. But that could draw to a close after the election. In education, the medical community, military, health care, business, Trump has seen, it to, seen to it rather that people have the protections they need to pray, worship, employ, lead, and express themselves freely. But that defense of religious freedom at home isn't just for our benefit. It's essential to the protection and safety of Christians everywhere. And while young seminarians are being slaughtered in Nigeria and Sudanese churches are being burned to the ground, what our leaders do and stand for— matters. The founders, the president reminded everyone on the 15th of January, entrusted the American people with the responsibility to protect religious liberty so that our nation may stand as a bright beacon for the rest of the world. Today, we remain committed to that sacred endeavor and strive to support those around the world who still struggle under oppressive regimes that impose restrictions on the freedom of religion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
0: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show tomorrow on the program. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to stick to the tradition, and we will take a look at the lighter side of the news. James Blend will join me for a portion of the program. We'll also, of course, share the headlines of the day, which will not include, thankfully, um, news of an, an ongoing investigation that's unresolved. Now, that doesn't mean things are all hunky-dory in Washington, but at least for now, we don't have an ongoing investigation. There are no hearings, uh, nothing to report on that front. Anyway, we will cover the uh, the major news headlines so that you can be up to date. We also started a new um, tradition. What do I call it, James? Starting a new pattern for the Friday program. We're going to start uh, both hours with a bit of uh, headline news. So both at 4 o'clock and at 5 o'clock, we'll share with you what's going on Uh, around the country so that you are up to date heading into the weekend. And we're also sharing with you the interview of the week. And we'll share that with you during the five o'clock hour as well. So we'll remind you of all of that tomorrow, but uh, taking a look at the lighter side of the news for fun Friday coming up on tomorrow's program. Well, I appreciated a column in Christianity today uh, that points to geezers such as myself with a headline, your church needs boomers. I was surprised to learn that I'm a baby boomer. I fall on the bottom end of that, but I still am technically a baby boomer. Um, And the uh, article focuses on the fact that the hyper focus on attracting the young can sideline the aging faithful. I mean, we all aspire to age, to do so gracefully and to remain relevant. And this uh, article seems to focus on that very thing. And because there are more boomers and fewer uh, young people, apparently the church needs boomers. Uh, Writes Michelle Van Loon, we uh, rarely hear, put as bluntly as did the small congregation of Grove United Methodist Church, where some members recently claimed age discrimination over a service being canceled. But there are many churches sending a similar message. If you are an older adult, we don't want you here, or at least we don't want you on the platform. There are churches in our community who say if you are over a particular age, and it's on the lower end of the continuum, you're not really welcome on the platform. In other words, there's sort of an expiration date Uh, attached to your relevance to the church and your capacity to serve. Well, as part of a denominational effort to reboot the Cottage Grove, Minnesota church, leaders are asking the 25 or so people who gather each week in the Grove building to leave their building and worship at the nearby sister congregation while a team plants a new church at their uh, campus. Well, according to a St. Paul Pioneer press report, Uh, Those mostly older members have been directed to wait 15 to 18 months after its launch before asking new leadership if they can migrate back. This seems a bit outrageous to me. While a single news story can fully, uh, rather, can't fully capture the history of the relationship between the lay led congregation and the denomination, nor the nuances of recent discussions over revitalization, church leaders clarify their approach in a follow up, um, the situation highlights a phenomenon. Uh, with which many older adults are all too familiar. During more than a decade writing about spiritual formation in the second half of life, Michelle Van Loon says she's uh, heard a painful litany of stories from those who've been ignored, marginalized, patronized, or treated as rusting obstacles blocking the path to the Holy Grail of church growth. Older members hear the message they're not valued in a variety of ways. The worship team comes comprised of members under 40, a range of programming designed for younger attendees, or a lack of pastoral care when they're in the trenches of long-term illness or caring for aging parents. One of the reasons I so appreciate the um, outreach of Nursing Home Ministries. Those who've been burned or burned out by congregational politics tend to fade away from congregational life, and many have told uh, the writer, Michelle Van Loon, that no one ever bothered to find out why. They just fade out of memory and out of sight. A few years ago, an informal survey of nearly 100 pastors and church leaders uh, presented mixed perspectives on the older members in the congregation. While some expressed gratitude for their wisdom, experience, stability, and ongoing financial support, with an emphasis on financial support, others were frustrated. They said the older demographic appeared to resist change while decreasing regular involvement in the life of the local church. Sadly, few leaders brought up how older members face different challenges as they move into the second half of their lives. Spiritual practices, church involvement, are necessarily impacted by increased caregiving responsibilities, workplace demands, fatigue from church politics, disconnection from programming, focused on attracting young families, and a loss and grief. Well, studies and think pieces um, suggest that the young are leaving many congregations, but so are Gen Xers and boomers who claim they no longer feel welcome at the churches they helped to build in their youth. Barna research found that the majority of those who love Jesus but not the church are actually over forty. Nearly half at forty-four percent of unchurched Christians are boomers, and another third, thirty five percent, are Generation X. And while it's a good desire to want to draw younger families to a church, the desire is not healthy. If it doesn't also include a desire for a diversity of ages and life stages that reflects the reality of what it means to belong to a multi-generational family of God. We spend a lot of time emphasizing diversity, but that diversity is really very narrow in its focus. We want ethnic diversity. Uh, we want, um, uh, you know, younger people with families to feel welcomed and all of that, but not uh, necessarily those who are in the upper age demographic. Certainly scripture presents a counter-cultural message about the beauty and value of age and experience that flies in the face of the lopsided craving to build a church focused on young families and young families alone throughout the Bible we who love God are commanded to proclaim His salvation from one generation to the next. There are a reason that Mary's response to the angelic news that she would be bearing a son would save the world included these words: "His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation." That's Luke 150. She understood well that the household of faith was designed by God to be intergenerational. God's household is the very definition of the church. We're not like a household or family. We are one. One pastor, Lee Ecklove, Feels Like Home, how rediscovering the church as family changes everything. Well, older members may hear they're valued members of the family as they've invited to serve in meaningful ways, honored as mentors and friends, offered programming that sparks uh, their interest and speaks to their life stages and maturity level and welcomed onto multi-age worship teams. And even a few park plays uh, play dates with younger families in a culture fractured and divided. A congregation that functions as an intergenerational family is radically and beautifully countercultural. something to think about. I recall growing up in the house of prayer for all nations, the little church that I attended in Northeast Portland as a child, up until the time that I was a young adult, uh, how I cherish, and even now, looking back over the significant role that the older members of that congregation played in my formative years, in my upbringing in the faith, if you will, how I value that history. And I would like to think in the church moving forward, that kind of value uh, would be uh, restored, if not retained, in cases where it's already in place. Anyway, something to think about in the church. In the 21st century. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. So, hope you will join us for that. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook.